Hey, 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 welcome to Scholar Tea. It's another episode of Scholars Giving You the Tea. I'm Cameron Carl. And I'm Shauna. And y'all came back with some more smoke. This episode, we'll do what we usually do. Of course, highlight our Scholar of the Week. We're going to spill some tea. And we're going to get into a wonderful episode and conversation with Dr. Joy Gatson-Gales, who is the current president of the Association for the Study of Higher Education. Annual conference is coming up very soon. I have some things for what's problematic. And of course, Shana's going to give you those wonderful jokes of the day that y'all just keep coming back for. And we have to celebrate and, and affirm um, some people as well. So shall we get into it, Shana? Let's do it. So first off, if your mood today was a corner store candy or snack, which candy or snack would you select? Fruities. Do you remember Fruities? Like 50 cent a little bag. You don't no. know Fruities? The little, no. So they're like flavored Tootsie Rolls. So it's in like Naptown, in Naptown <laughs> at the corner <laughs> store for 50 cent, you get a little baggie of the Fruities and they had different flavors like watermelon, cherry, grape. Oh my God. Okay. okay I'm going to have to send you the link to fruities Mm-mm. so i loved fruit they were like my friend i feel like you got your best money's worth because it was 50 cent and you got multiple fruities and they were so sweet and flavorful watermelon was my favorite flavor fruity i know there's a listener out there who knows what i'm talking about i don't mm-hmm. think it was just a mid well, you're from the midwest i don't think it was just the midwest thing either i never heard of them okay well why are you sharing yours i'm gonna send you the link to some fruities Wait, are they shaped like fruit? No, it's shaped like a, it's a Tootsie Roll. It's just flavored. It's like a fruit flavored Tootsie Roll. Mm -mm, No. Well, uh, so you're feeling what? Sweet? What is that? No, like my mood is like, I think people are getting their bang for their buck with me in all aspects of life. Okay. that's why that's why I'm mean, like what's my favorite candy at the corner store and it's it's the great value candy in the sense of you can get a lot of candy for 50 cents I just feel like I'm getting pulled in multiple directions with all the things that come with being a faculty member teaching service research but then all other aspects of my life there's some family things happening there's some friendship things happening so I just feel like I am being all things to all people and people are getting their bang for their buck at this point in my life so that's my mood for today well I feel like some Takis I feel pretty flavorful as well uh, with a little in the back of your neck you know like right at the last bite there's this little sharp twist and um you never know when it's coming it's never expected but it's deserved so i'm feeling that way today I, i'm pretty flavorful generally you enjoy me but if you bite down the wrong way I, I might i might get you that's how i feel so are you feeling spicy like is it a spicy yeah. too okay it's, it's right. spicy too but it, for me i don't know how everybody else engages around Takis but for me like sometimes it hits me and sometimes it doesn't and I think yeah it depends on how you go about it how you go about treating your Taki (laughs) if you treat it with respect and dignity it won't get you but if you have a a difficult time being respectful of your Taki it comes and bites you with the ass but also doesn't the temperature of the environment contribute to not necessarily for me I mean and, and you said this before, like you're pretty much a chameleon, like you can enter into most spaces or whatnot. And, and for me, like, yeah, those things don't resonate with me too much. Um, like I'm pretty good at being flexible a- around like people's um, 
disposition or the, the energy that they bring into a space. Like generally speaking, especially if I'm thinking about at work, like I'm good at centering myself enough where even if someone's being foolish, it, it doesn't necessarily determine what kind of energy I give back. But here and there, I have to let people know. I don't think anybody thinks I'm a doormat. I think everybody knows that part. But um, there are moments where, especially in my line of work, like I have to make a public show of what's going on in that space or I'm not doing my job. So if you come at the, the activity or the procedure, or if you come to the discussion with some dignity or with a willingness to learn, then I'm pretty easygoing. And if you're demonstrating like that, you're trying, yeah, no problem. Smooth all the way, flavorful. I'll give you everything I got. But sometimes people come at me sideways and, and I have to be a little sharp with them. Mm. We know you can, we know you can get spicy, sis. But I also, I also <laughs> think that sums up your, I think you, you give what, what is, you give what is given to you. So I think that does sum up your, who you are generally as a person as well. I'm pretty consistent. <laughs> Who's our scholar of the week, Shauna? We're very excited today to recognize and celebrate Dr. Krista J. Porter. She, her, hers is associate dean for the graduate college and associate professor of higher education administration and student affairs in the College of Education, Health and Human Services, EHHS at Kent State University. As a critical qualitative researcher, Dr. Porter's areas of expertise include policies and practices that influence the development and trajectory of Black women in higher education at diverse institutional types, college student development at the intersections of identities, and research and practices in higher education and student affairs, how and why we do what we do. She has been nationally recognized for her scholarship, teaching, and service, and her work appears in various peer-reviewed journals, such as Review of Educational Research, Journal of College Student Development, Journal of Higher Education, Gender, Work, and Organization, and Journal of Student Affairs Research and Practice. Dr. Porter co-edited the award-winning book, Case Studies for Student Development Theory, Advancing Social Justice and Inclusion in Higher Education. And additionally, she co-edited texts which include Applying Black Feminist Epistemology Research and Praxis, Narratives in and Through the Academy, and Small and Mighty, Student Affairs at Small Colleges and Universities. Please give it up for Dr. Krista Porter. Shout out to Krista. Love to see Dr. Porter at the conferences. I love to like be across the room when I see her and I give her the needing leaks wave and we come and embrace. So thank you for the important work that you are doing in these academic streets, Dr. Porter. Yes, thank you for everything you do. We are really appreciative, especially of scholars that are advancing the voices of Black women. All right, so what's hot on these streets? You know, the fall and the winter is coming. You know, we've been drinking iced tea. It's time to get some hot tea. So what's 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 the tea happening in these streets, Shana? Well, listen, when it comes to making higher education accessible, particularly to minoritized communities, the space has been historically politicized. Now, we're not talking about normal schools that were supposed to pass as colleges or universities or the boarding schools that decimated Native and Indigenous communities. As universities expanded their curriculum in the late 1800s and early 1900s, the opportunity to acquire college education was relegated to white affluent men. So this accumulation of privilege was blatantly embedded in the infrastructure, and we're talking about policies, traditions, curricula, pedagogy, 
as well as the physical structures of higher education across the US. So for example, at the University of Pennsylvania, uh, students who currently reside in the Fisher Hassenfeld Quad, and I mean, we're talking about like today, today in 2022, they live in houses whose rooms still feature relics of commonplace splits. So one side is constructed to house a student and the other side was constructed at the time to house the student servants. So students are still living in this structure physically right now, they're sleeping in what used to be servants quarters. Or more commonly, walk down the halls of most universities and examine the pictures of past presidents hanging in the walls. And even at HBCUs or MSIs, you'll see white folks. And it's not until the 60s and 70s that the faces of those white folks, white men, um, changed to racially minoritized individuals. It's not surprising then that the election cycle leading up to the occupancy of the White House in 2017 opened up a whole can of WTF that minoritized communities have been wrestling with for generations. That can include rhetoric around the value of the collegiate experience. And unfortunately tied solely to a return on investment or ability to gain employment, rather than the holistic edification of individuals, which by the way, creates substantial social change and capital for society. This rhetoric has created a new wave of battering against higher education. And along the short of it, Folks are upset that one, a college education is expensive, which by the way, I think is a completely valid argument. Two, students are required to expand their horizons through gen ed courses. And three, that their tax dollars might be going towards the education of a quote unquote other. Now, recently, social media has been a buzz on the topic of gen eds and whether or not they connect to a student's specialization. And Cameron, you said that you saw some things on BlackSap in particular, right? Yeah, the people got a little, I don't want to say heated, but there was some, I think, controversial takes on this topic, right? So one person in a gist said that with the cost of college, we should be getting rid of gen eds that are unrelated to a major. So why does somebody have to take a music class when their major might be meteorology? Or it makes no sense um, to have wasted money and high school is for broad education, college is for a specialization. Hmm. And I struggle with this in the sense of I have privilege, I'm highly educated, I am an educator, so I know that informs my take on this. But that take, I think, has lent itself to where we are as a society, whether that be politically, whether that be um, understanding the realms of a pandemic, whether it be the reckoning of, of racism and white supremacy, right? And, and to me, it's the lack of critical thinking skills that has got us to where we are as a society today. And I think we could be way more advanced if we invested in the process of understanding how to critically think. And I think general ed classes allow space for developing that muscle of critical thinking when done well and done intentionally. So to totally dismiss you know, having to take English or having to think critically about history that are, you know, oftentimes rooted in a gen ed requirement because I want to be a business major. To me, that that then is going to speak 20 years down the line when we are trying to implement policy around people's um, and equitable ways around people's gender and race for a company. But you don't care about that because you don't understand the historical implications of where we've been as a country and how inequity has been perpetuated and maintained because you lack the historical critical analysis of those things. 
So I, just, I don't know, I just get really frustrated on this take of, let me just take classes to get my degree in whatever major that I'm getting, knowing that you're probably going to switch careers three to five times. I think it's even more than that statistically. So do you have the capacity to transfer those skills of whatever major you got to now pursue something else, um, given what's going to change economically, what's going to change technologically, what's going to change, you know, where we're going to, where, where we are in 20 years is obviously where we're not, where we're not going to be today. So let me be quiet. I would love to hear your thoughts on mm-hmm. this, Shana. I just get really frustrated around this particular issue and topic. <laughs> You know, when there was a a space geared towards white men's advancement or edification, people didn't have these qualms to the same extent. Now, maybe, you know, the ways that people were able to communicate were different because technology was different. But I think by, by and large, it feels like now that we have diversified colleges and universities, people have problems with gen ed because now we have financial aid. And so people are seeing financial aid as something that's coming out of their pockets and they don't want to contribute towards the education of someone that doesn't look like them. I think also bootstrap theory, you know, people are thinking, well, why can't you pay for your own college education? Why can't you figure it out? Because my forefathers were able to figure it out. I think all those things have uh, complicated this conversation around then what it means to get a college education. I think on top of all of that, you know, solely connecting a a college degree to advancement, career advancement is a big problem for us because we all understand that an educated society is is one that is stronger, is healthier, is more financially stable in, in a variety of different ways. And so it's not just about the career. It's also, you know, engagement with other thoughts, um, other ideologies, those things come out in those gen eds. And so when we squarely try to utilize higher education as a space to ensure that people get employment, it's super capitalistic because that's not what it's all about. I think that disconnect has been uh, wedged on purpose uh, because at the end of the day, what you want to make sure is that you have a populace that does not have a fully educated understanding of the issues so that if they had a full understanding of more complexity and nuance in, in what those issues are and how they show up in legislation, for example, you may not get the votes that you want. So I, I don't mean to sound like a conspiracy theorist, but I see all these things come together and coalescing and you can't tell me that one thing isn't related to the other. And so this attack on gen ed, this attack on higher ed writ large, it's nothing new. We've been seeing it for for a long time, but it definitely has intensified because we have diversified those spaces. That's that's my thought. It, yeah, as you were talking, I was like, it's, it's a layer of entrance convergence, right? Like in the sense of look who votes for whom <laughs> and highly educated vote, people vote a certain way and, high, and uneducated um, in the sense of, you know, um, high school diploma, college degree, advanced degrees um, and that type of education in the formal sense of, of education. Um, and, and thinking about how does the minority will itself onto the majority in, in decision-making power. And I think to your point, not to get to conspiracy theory, but these things are, like you said, these things are on purpose, right? With an intended outcome. People are playing the long game, um, especially politically, when it comes to their attack on education, education policy, education funding, because we, as people of color, are the majority and are going to be the great majority in this country. And more and more of us become the educated majority, people are losing their power. Mm-hmm. Excuse me, white people losing their power. 
<laughs> and rather than understanding how a cohesive social system could strengthen everyone's access to receiving an advanced education, our society continues to place the onus of attaining a college degree on the backs of individuals. So all these things are coming together. And, and it's really hard for me to just have that one conversation about should we have gen eds or should, should we not? Because from my understanding that that question in itself is rooted politicizing higher education. I, you can't tell me they're, they're separate issues. They're all connected from my perspective. So we would, we would love to hear y'all's thoughts. Hit us up on the Twitter. We got a Facebook page. Kind of what, what are people feeling about um, as more and more people of color become uh, integrated into higher education at all levels? They are now saying that, <laughs> why are we paying for these people to get their degree? Anyways, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. thinking critically about gen ed, thinking critically about um, the role of higher education for a glo- for a uh, public good versus a private good, right? This is very much connected to humanizing higher education. And so actually, I think talking about this topic is right on point with also interviewing Dr. Joy Gaston-Gale today. I think this is the perfect segue into our next conversation with this beautiful scholar, because um, hopefully as those uh, will those attending Ash will see, um, we are having those conversations even in November around what it means to humanize higher education, I think in the midst of all of this happening. So please welcome Dr. Joy Gaston-Gale to Scholar Team. Everybody, uh, this is Shauna and Cameron again, uh, welcoming Dr. Joy Gaston Gales. We're very excited to be spending time with this tremendous scholar, mentor, uh, pinnacle in the field. Joy, can you talk to us about what the last two years have taught you about yourself? The past two years taught me about myself in terms of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Um, it taught me to value um, things in a way that I perhaps took for granted, I think. Particularly, there's something about not being able to spend time with your family that made you value family more. Um, And so that, and then, you know, I don't know, I I just feel like in terms of my family, um, the pandemic aged us in a lot of ways. Um, And so that kind of brought it into more focus for me too. Um, And so, you know, not being able to see my family for a year was tough. Um, And while I was able to see my immediate family, I also spent a lot of time with extended family and friends. And so I didn't also, I also didn't realize how important that was to my health and well-being. Um, And so, you know, doing it pre-pandemic, you kind of take it for granted. And then when you lose it, all of a sudden it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Um, And so I had to find creative ways to you know, take care of my mental health because it was tough. It was really tough. And so I guess it taught me that about myself. And I, you know, also found myself searching for hope, I think. And it it also made me realize that, you know, I think I lived my life pre-pandemic feeling like I always had to know, know what was going to happen next. And so something about this pandemic you know, reminded me like, you're, you're going to be okay. And you don't always have to know exactly is in front of you or what's coming down the pike. Like you just take the first step um, and it will unfold the way that it needs to unfold and you will be okay. 
Um, and so that that was a hard lesson to learn because I'm, you know, some people reflect back to me that I have control issues. I don't always agree, um, but it forced me to kind of let go of of some of that and just trust and um, pray and um, and be creative about you know how I how I took care of myself. Thank you for saying that because that that has definitely been a theme that we want to weave throughout this season is, is how are we taking care of ourselves? What does that, yeah. what does that mean in practice? Not only in theory, um, I, for Shauna and I, what we love about you is you are, you are always present. And I think a quality of yours is how self self-aware you are. So how do you oh, carry I your, no- that. thank you for how- reflecting that back to me. Yeah. Yeah. How do you carry your knowledge of self into your work? Oh gosh. And it's funny you say that, Cameron, because I don't think I started that way. I, I definitely see this as an evolution. So when I say thank you for reflecting that back to me, I feel like I've been through a lot of changes and I'm still figuring it out. But when people reflect things back to me, it gives me a clue that I might be on the right track. Um, but you know, I started my career at Florida State. And when I tell you, Cameron, when I was in Tallahassee, I didn't show up at the, as the version of me that you see now. Um, I was very much very not sure of myself. Um, I wasn't sure what I was doing. Um, you know, being in predominantly white institutions, I didn't know what was going on. I didn't know if it was race, gender, the intersection of the two, I did, age. I didn't know what it was. But when I finished my PhD, I was pretty close in age to students. And so I found myself masking a lot. Um, and so, you know, I would you know, try to look older, you know, I wore glasses, even though I didn't need them. Um, but I could have wore contacts, but I wore glasses. But but the reason for wearing the glasses was to try to set myself apart. It's like a 180 um, now and that I don't hide myself, you know, from my students. They're going to get all of this, like I'll look, everything that, that I am, you know, they get. Um, and I, I don't know how I discovered it um, in terms of just showing up and being authentic and realizing that people going to be okay with that, right? Because that's who I am. And that's how you get the best of me is when I show up as my full self. But if I'm masking or if I'm trying to, you know, do things the way that I think it should be done, you know, in a white academy, like that didn't work. That didn't work well. It didn't feel good for me. Um, and it it wasn't good for students either, because, you know, I think on some levels, they may have been able to feel it, you know, and then some people feel it and then they try to test you, right? Other people feel it and they may have a different response. But yeah, and I just think it comes with maturity too. Like as, as people of color in the academy, you know, whenever you're the first to do a thing, you know, it also means that you don't know what you're doing necessarily. Not, not that you don't know what you're doing. You do know what you're doing. But something about being the only in a space makes you doubt, yourself in ways that you shouldn't um but you do and those spaces are set up intentionally on purpose absolutely self-doubt yeah yeah it it banks on that right because then they can do all the things all the things can happen and go unchecked um because you're too busy doubting yourself to realize that no that really was a microaggression and yeah i am really experiencing racial battle fatigue like these things are real well and yeah those pieces actually kind of come up into the theme for ash this year too right like can you talk a bit more about how you arrived to the ash 2022 convention theme and what that means to you and maybe how it ties into some of the things you were just talking about 
Yeah, absolutely. So I came to the theme, you know, because, you know, I, I said this in the other um, discussion, like when you, when you become average president, you come up with a theme um, and then you have to go figure out what the theme means. Um, but for me, I wanted to have something that reflects the times, the times that we're in. And, you know, what I've discovered as I'm writing my presidential address is that this idea isn't new. I feel like we've been talking about humanizing spaces and the need for humanizing education, higher education for a long time. Um, and so, but we haven't gotten there yet. Um, and so I, I wanted it to be a theme for this year because I just feel like, you know, this is an opportunity. I think big challenges like a global health pandemic is also an opportunity to do something different. And I feel like we're at a space and time where we can't just go back. I don't know, like there's no going back, right? But what that also means is there's a space to do something different and to show up in the academy and to hold the academy accountable for what it says it's about, not just in words, but in deed. Um, and so humanizing higher education kind of encompasses that. And to me, a very basic, simple definition is that, you know, we don't deny people the right to life, liberty, and justice. Like everybody gets to experience and, and have their full humanity honored in spaces, in society, and in education. To me, that's what humanizing means. But, you know, humanizing for it to be a call to action, there's also, it also means that there's a lot of dehumanizing going on. Right. And that's what I was talking about when you show up in these spaces, predominantly white spaces, and, you know, you experience so much stuff that's been so normalized into the culture that, again, people don't even see it because it's it's been normalized in policies, practices, values, like, you know, and I just think about like corporatization of higher ed, like, you know, being on this productivity train, it's just like, nah, that's not for me. Like, I'm going to do my work, but I'm not doing it from that uh, lens or from that standpoint. Well, I also wonder what it means uh, within a culture of retaliation, right? I, I think another thing that we're also, also often combating within the academy as a, a space that is meant towards edification is knowing that sometimes we'll come up into that space as our full selves and we'll either get our hands smacked for it or, mm -hmm. you know, our papers aren't accepted to the same rate, or we're told that our research isn't rigorous enough because, yeah. you know, it's not reflecting those uh, normative ideas. And so I'm also curious to know there might even be some space to talk about accountability and, and how do we go about addressing issues of accountability um, in moments where people are actually trying to actively do those things and they don't have the power to show up the way that they would prefer to. Yeah. And, and that's what I mean. Like it, it's designed that way. Right. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you come in as if you're on the tenure track, you come in as an assistant professor, you don't feel like you have a whole lot of power and control because you know that in a very short time, you know, people are going to make decisions about your career advancement, your future. Um, and so you, you kind of do feel like, and I noticed I said, feel like you have to do this, that, and the third. And if you're the only one, that feeling can be that much stronger, right? Because you don't feel like you have a community of support around you. And so I think it's designed that way. Um, and, and people do experience a lot of barriers, but, but also I think we like, I'm, I come from a place of empowerment. 
even the work that I do with NCFDD is like, how can we empower ourselves to get to a space where we can begin to change the system? And how can we change it along the way? If you don't, you know, have a community of support, if you don't have people around you who can tell you or show you a different way, then we do fall prey to what I call tactics of mass distraction. Like all of it's there to distract you and keep you from doing the work that needs to be done to dismantle systemic oppression. I mean, that's why the heat is up now. And I always say this, I know when, I know when we're close because the heat gets hot, like it gets real hot. And I feel like people mad and, you know, folks uh, trying to legislate, you know, systemic oppression in ways that, you know, people, we can see you, we can see what you're doing and think about voting. Like you got to vote because, you know, we are putting people in places to fast track this stuff through and use their power um, and wield their power in ways that are uh, weaponizing. I mean, but, you know, that doesn't mean don't do the work. That means you got to find communities of support to help you navigate and think through how to do the work, right? How, how to help you think through how to deal with reviewer two. And how to help you think through, well, you don't have to put your work there, put it over here. And how to communicate that, you know, in your dossier to, to quiet the naysayers over here, right? And we have more power. And, you know, sometimes you got to, like, nowadays, I feel like, you know, when when we are on the job market, like, you, you're you interviewing them, too. And you can tell. And and it may mean that you, you choose not to go there. Absolutely. And, you know, I love the boss move. You know, Nicole um, Hedda Jones just bossed up. Like, I'm not even like, I don't even care what you do. Like, I'm gonna make you do what's right. But at the end of the day, I'm I'm out. And so to me, that was like such an empowering move. Because you've already shown me who you are. So yeah, so why yeah. would I? Yeah. yeah, I'm gonna put my head all the way in the lion's den. And so, and that also means you got to ask some questions to give you a sense of, you know, what the community and culture is like, yeah, they can do a bait and switch, but if you ask the right questions, you'll be able to, to see. Because there's only so much that they can, they can hide or, or dress up. Right. Absolutely. And, and, I, and I think that lends to one of our, one of our last questions for you is, is <laughs> this great resignations, right? This in the midst of this great resignation that across fields people are experiencing, but specifically what it looks like in higher education. Yeah. Uh, um, do you have anything to add? I think you've already offered some advice, but specifically offering that advice for the marginalized and the minoritized individu- individuals in the academy, both you know in faculty life, but also in administrative, student affairs, academic affairs, and particularly those that are reconsidering their career paths. What advice yeah. would you offer them? Yeah, that's that's a good um, question. It's a problem that that's not going away because I think what some people learned during the pandemic is again, my values, what my values are and what I value and what's important to me and in a different way of living, being and working and knowing. And so, you know, once you've been exposed to that and now you want me to come back to this grind, like, no, you know, and I, I love that people are, are choosing to do other things and, and taking some bold moves because I think it takes that in order to get us where we need to be. But I'm telling you, higher ed better learn fast. This grind culture, like that's that's going to be a thing of the past because people are just not willing to spend their time and energy that way. And be poorly compensated, right? And be like- poorly. Co- I don't. I don't even know if I want to do it if you pay me, right? 
if you pay me just to grind, 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 because, you know, I, I was listening to probably a podcast um, and they were talking about like, do you really understand when you say grind culture, when you say I'm, I'm grinding, do you really understand what you're saying? Because if you think about what it means to grind something, that means to put so much pressure on it that you are kind of destroying it or getting it down to its core. You know, I'm old. And so I think about, you know, my feet and I don't have any cushion around my bones. It's like, if you are grinding, you're getting down to the bone and that hurts. I am so off that train. Like I'm going to do my work, but I don't want to be a part of anybody's grind culture. And then when you think about grinding for who, you know, you grinding for the academy. Like it has to be something deeper um, than that for me. Like I'm a grind because I want this world you know, I want higher education to be better for people who are coming behind us. Like when my kids who are about to go to college in a few years, like I want it to be a better space. So, so that's why I'm doing the work. I'm not doing it, you know, to impress folks, to, you know, get accolades um, or to participate necessarily in this, in this grind culture, because I do think it's a, it's a form of white supremacy. It's a form of whiteness. Um, and I'm, and I don't want to be anything close to that. Right. And so I got to frame it for me so that I always have at the center what's important and why I'm doing this work. And if I start from that place, I feel like it just keeps me authentic. It keeps me honest. It keeps me in check. It makes me go to bed when I need to go to bed. Um, it makes me do what I need to do to take care of myself. Well, in an effort to help folks get to know you a little bit better, humanize you, uh, and make sure we're not grinding you into dust, um, we're <laughs> going into the lightning round. You have to choose. It's oh. dichotomous. You can't oh. say a little bit of this, a little bit of that. You have to decide. So think okay. fast. You ready? I think so. I, I don't have no chance to explain my answer. Mm -hmm. I oh. mean, okay, we'll take some explanations, but you you can't. You people always, people always stop and explain. So right, yeah. right, right. I feel like I gotta explain. Mm, yeah. Okay. You, you gotta pick one though. Okay. Okay. Pancakes or waffles? Oh, waffles. Belgian preferred. <laughs> the, the good ones, huh? Audiobook or give me that hard copy off the printer. You know, I used to be a hard copy because I like to feel the book, but that's that happened during the pandemic. I I got a whole subscription to Audible. That thing uh, is expensive. Um, lip gloss or shoes? Ooh, pre-pandemic shoes, post-pandemic lip gloss. <laughs> <laughs> My feet don't like shoes anymore. Uh, that's the other thing I learned about myself. We don't like shoes. Yeah, but I like shoes. <laughs> My feet just don't like them. Yeah. You want to be in the beach house or the penthouse? Ooh, beach house. Yeah, people who know me know if you follow me on social media, y'all know I'm going to the beach at least two times per summer. And that's the other thing I missed during the pandemic. I didn't get my beach time in. So now it's on. Like we, we plan that thing way out. So let me know. I'll go with you. Yeah. Final one pink or green? Green. Green is my favorite color. So that one was easy. But, you know, I take both. <laughs> I'm a green girl too. 
Yeah. Well, we really appreciate your time today, Dr. Gales. Um, happy to have you. Thank you for sharing your insight. And I hope that our listeners were able to pick up some things that you were, were, were sharing and manifesting them in their lives as well. Well, I appreciate you having me. This was a lot of fun. Thanks for inviting me. Don't you just love Joy? Like I love, I love her brilliance. I love her leadership of, of the association. I love her care for young scholars. Like as a young, some people say I'm not a young scholar anymore, but as an emerging scholar, I remember her just investing in me in the sense of me as a human caring about me. How am I taking care of myself? Uh, I remember she came to Florida State. I was a first year assistant professor and she came to do a professional development workshop And I was just like in awe of the way she was talking about mentoring and checking these white people around what it means to foster a culture of care for people of color. So I've always been in awe of the wonderful Dr. Joy Gatson-Gales, and we appreciate her coming and having some tea with us here on Scholar Tea as she prepares for the ASH conference. Absolutely. Truly an inspiration. All right, it's time to round out this episode with what's problematic and some jokes of the day and ending with some affirmations. So what's problematic is that we are now three years into this pandemic and I've been thinking about what lessons have we learned as a culture, as a society, as higher education. And I wanna talk about what's problematic in the sense of making, I think there's been this movement of anti-remote work. And I think that's extremely problematic. Stop telling folks that remote work is unproductive or you are not as productive because that's lies you tell. Just thinking about it, remote work saves lives in the sense of people's sanity, people's energy, people's time, right? When you have time to get up, to get a workout in, to eat a nice breakfast, to sit down and engage in the work, engage in your colleagues, that does world of wonder for your psyche instead of having to get up, get rushed, sit in traffic for those of you that live in in large cities, waste money, having to spend money to travel to work, then to park at work and the coins that you have to spend. So people don't have to be thinking about what they're wearing, don't have to be thinking about the disdain of the small talk of the office culture that speaks to your collegiality or non-collegiality. For me, remote work actually makes people more productive, especially in, in the world of a business where productivity is rooted in how profitable some something is going to be. Remote work gives the autonomy. Whenever someone asks me, why do I love being a faculty member? A lot of it is the autonomy of my time. And why shouldn't all workers uh, that can do so in a remote fashion whether it be fully remote or partially remote, why should we have the autonomy of our time? If we are not working, then people need, are not working remotely, then people need additional childcare sometimes that then speaks into financial budgets that speaks to an already taxed budget sitting in inflation and a quote unquote non-recession recession that, that I think we're in. And people that are against remote work, I just want to ask, who hurt you? Because to me, there's some trust issues. To me, there's some reliability issues. If you feel like I need to be sitting in my office in order for me to get the work done that you need, then I think there's something wrong with you. I want to know who hurt you. 
if anybody can answer me that, I would appreciate it. And I know people disagree with me. And I know people that are much more productive maybe in the office, but shouldn't you have the option into that? Or shouldn't you be able to at least work remotely a few days a week? No matter if you're if you're front facing with people, with students, I think there's an opportunity for you to choose how you engage in the productivity of your work. Cameron, I have some thoughts to that. And I think the last one uh, that really resonates with me actually is, you know, the psychological, the intergenerational psychological impact of the overseer effect. And so you got some people out there that actually thrive in feeling like they're somebody's overseer, that they're meant to be policing somebody else's space, place, psyche, or their bodies. And so I have to believe that some of that message is rooted in people's feeling like they have the obligation to be someone else's overseer. That's just my opinion. Well, you said it, sips tea. Oh, that's hot. <laughs> All right. So that's what's problematic this week. We'd love to hear your thoughts on, on this. I know some of you disagree. So we'd love to hear your, your perspective and your context um, and, and how you agree or disagree with what's problematic this week. Shana, let's get into the jokes of the week. Jokes of the week. Are you ready? You ready to laugh? Bloop, 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 bloop. <laughs> ready? <clears throat> what do you call it when Erica Badu falls down a flight of stairs? Is she okay? Okay. Erica. Ba-doop, 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 ba-doop. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> what do sprinters eat before a race? Sprinters eat before a race. Something to make them fast? Nothing. They fast. <laughs> day fast. <laughs> day, it's the day fast, huh? Okay. I got it. I got it. I got it. I got it. <laughs> my mom didn't like my report card. I said, okay. She said, I want more A's. I said, okay. More A's and okay. Yeah, no. Okay. Whatever. I like that one. I like that one. I like that <laughs> one. It didn't make me laugh, but I liked it. I liked it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of bee makes honey move? Beyonce? A Cardi B. <laughs> That's my jokes of the week. Okay, those are cute. Those are cute. Two snaps. I know the people are laughing in their car driving home. Okay, Sean, I see you with the jokes of the week. Well, many congratulations to Brian Burt, who was recently named the director of Wisconsin's Equity and Inclusion Laboratory, and to Ebony Ford Turnbaugh, who was selected as the vice president for student affairs at CSU Channel Islands. The late great John Lewis once said, get in good trouble, necessary trouble and help redeem the soul of America. While I recognize that the soul of the U.S. is severely stained, I'm hopeful that the society within which we now live can be redeemed. It will take educators and community members like yourselves to advance our understandings of justice, social change, and cultivating a culture of care. I truly believe that with this next generation, we'll have the opportunity to observe the demonstrable power of higher education and higher learning. Thank you for your service to our communities, Thank you for your dedication to our future generations. And thank you for your willingness to get in good, necessary trouble. Black Ashe. Ashe. That's all we got for y'all this week. Have a wonderful, wonderful week. And we will catch y'all on the flip side of Scala T. Okay, stay safe in these academic streets. (laughs) 